Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Summer is all about grilling, and no one understands grilling better than Omaha Steaks. Their grand summer grill-out package lets you stay home and eat like you're at the best steakhouse in town, all for much less. They've got bacon wrap filet mignon, pork chops, chicken, kielbasa, and more, all delivered to your door with ease. And right now, Omaha Steaks is offering an exclusive deal on this amazing package. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code LIBERAL into the search bar, and for this week only, Omaha Steaks will add four burgers and four gourmet jumbo franks free with your order. Omaha Steaks delivers quality and safety with every order guaranteed. Your order will arrive flash frozen, vacuum sealed, and safely delivered to your door in a cooler with dry ice. Go to omahasteaks.com, type liberal in the search bar, and order the Grand Summer Grill Out Package. For this week only, you'll receive four Jumbo Franks and four Omaha Steaks burgers free to complete your steakhouse experience. omahasteaks.com, enter code liberal in the search bar. You know, Donald Trump needs to stop worrying about going down as the worst president in American history and start worrying about going down as the worst American in all history. Let's begin. Welcome to the Sanity Cast. I'm John Fugelsang. This episode is dedicated to Kodak. That's right, Kodak, the one-time photography leader. Kodak is now shifting into production of drug ingredients using a loan Donald Trump has given them under the Defense Production Act. Your unemployment has to go away, but we're going to spend $765 million of your money to a photography company that developed the technology to go digital, but lacked the vision to actually go digital. So now we'll let them make drugs. Uh, And again, sorry that two thirds of your unemployment is going to go away during a plague. I mean, it's insane, right? When Kodak collapsed, you know, people said it wasn't that they didn't shift to digital photography, but their real strength was in chemicals. And if so, if photography was now digital, they should have stayed with their strength, which was chemicals. So, you know, look, here's how I feel about this thing. Uh, I don't want to be negative. So let's just see what develops. 
boy, these are terrible jokes. I just want to say one thing about this. Uh, Kodak, we're not getting an actual cure, just a picture of it. It's the perfect metaphor for the Trump era. And I'm so glad you guys are with us. This episode, I'm really, really honored. I, I have this author. I've wanted to get her on the show for three months, and I'm so thrilled. Leslie Streeter, who many of you might follow already on uh, on on Twitter, but she's a, a journalist, and her book is called Black Widow. Uh, well, actually, it's called Black Widow, A Sad, Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the title. And it's a perfect book for getting through all the horror of pandemic. It's not just a defense mechanism, finding the funny in a crisis. It's a book that shows how it really is a healthy choice. Uh, Leslie describes her book as uh, it's about surviving the worst of times with clear eyes and humor. She was an African-American Baptist girl who uh, met this Jewish white boy in high school. And then 19 years later, they wound up connecting again. And they didn't even know it, but they lived within 20 minutes of each other. They got married. And that alone would be a great book. But then her husband got sick and died tragically, very, very young. And it was a hellacious experience for her. Um, way too young to be a widow with no skills whatsoever. It's, it's such a moving book about getting through the rough times. And she is so smart and funny. I, I am really, really thrilled to have her on Sanity Cast. It's uh, really not just one of the most appropriate guests we've had, but it could be the first appropriate guest we had. They're all great, but let's be honest here. So I'm so, so glad. Uh, I hope you'll stick around for the whole interview with Leslie Streeter. In the meantime, you're picking me up at a pretty wild time. Remember when stuff used to happen one at a time and not all the fuck at once? The federal police are withdrawing from Portland. We're leaving the local police to guard the federal property, which is sort of how it was always supposed to be done in the first place. Donald Trump has run, I believe, uh, 63,000, yes, 63,000 ads about violence. He has run about mobs and, and, and you know, uh, uh, protests. He has run zero ads that mention coronavirus. That's all historians need to know. And by historians, I mean the aliens who have come to this burned out planet picking through our digital leavings. Um, it's just, all right, so America's going to pull 12,000 troops out of bases in Germany, which is exactly what Putin has wanted for a very long time. Donald Trump talked to Putin on the phone on June 1st, and a couple days later, he announced this plan. Uh, he did not tell Germany and he's going to bring some troops home. Uh, it's going to cost billions of dollars, the military has said, billions with a B of dollars to do this, including building the housing for the troops back home and moving troops to countries like, uh, oh, Italy and Belgium. By the way, he's doing it because he says uh, Germany's not paying their NATO fees. Two things. There's no such thing as fucking NATO fees. It's 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 not Netflix, dude. And also, um, Germany pays more for defense than either Belgium or Italy. So he's not doing this for any strategic reason. And that's all you need to know. He's doing it because Putin wants it. And Putin owns his debt via Deutsche Bank. I, I, you know, someday we'll talk about it or we won't. I thought when Bush left office, we'd talk about his administration, frankly, and now he's a hero. So what do I know? Um, also, you may have noticed in a series of tweets, Donald Trump promised to protect the suburbs from the scourge of low income housing. How about that? I mean, what do you do when your dog whistle becomes a train whistle? I'm happy to inform all the people living their suburban lifestyle dream 
I think that's like a sex club, the suburban lifestyle dream for couples. Uh, you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low income housing built in your neighborhood. Uh, I know saying fuck you to poor people is very important for him and much of his base, but I mean, like, did Stephen Miller write this? This is Stephen Miller writing this, and this is Stephen Miller's idea, a suburban lifestyle dream. This is how Stephen Miller thinks non-Slytherin people talk. That's all you need to know about it. I mean, he's literally just desperately trying to appeal to suburban voters through racial prejudice. And I'm like, bro, we knew you were desperate, scared, and racist when you started saying China virus. This is white supremacy. You're trying to gut the Fair Housing Act rescinding a rule that's there to help fight modern day segregation. You have 96 days left, Caligula. Boom. Also, uh, the number of confirmed cases in the States has surpassed four and a half million and over 153,000 Americans have died that officially as of this recording. Trump did not mention those stats and medical experts are now warning that if we continue down our path, and fail to contain or slow the spread, i.e. have a national policy, we're going to see the number of deaths skyrocket well into the multiple hundreds of thousands. How do you prevent that? You wear a mask. And by the way, um, (laughs) you know, I bring this up uh, because Christians don't care about people in jail, even though that's one of the things Jesus actually told them to do. But across the states, the number of no, and again, not all Christians, some Christians are good Christians. They care a lot about people in jail. Grab them by the pussy Christians, don't. And across the states, the number of known infections in our prisons has soared by 45% in the last 29 days, more than 80,000. And that's despite really limited testing in our prisons. Prison deaths related to COVID-19 have risen by nearly 25%. In fact, the, uh, the 13 largest known clusters of the virus in the U.S. and 87 of the top 100 can be found inside our correctional institutions. And the first phase three clinical trial of a COVID-19 vaccine in America has begun. It will involve approximately 30,000 volunteers. Uh, Our president is still, uh, yesterday he tweeted a couple of different fringe disinformations of COVID-19. You've heard about the demon sperm doctor. I mean, one of the doctors, one of the doctors in that clip, did you see the, oh my God, how much did you love it? I mean, I mean, what do you do when like you're, you're watching TV and the news comes on and you're seeing all these people in matching lab coats that are all calling themselves doctors is telling you to take hydroxychloroquine and they're, they're all wearing lab coats that match on a sidewalk in DC. If you're a dumb person, you believe what Hannity's telling you, but my God, they're not even good at propaganda. So he's still pitching hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Kay Ivey, one of our worst governors in Alabama, um, one fourth of all COVID cases in Alabama, that's 22,000 of 81,000 total cases reported in just the last two weeks. Kay Ivey, who mocked this from the beginning and mocked safety guidelines saying, we are not California. Now she's, uh, she's, she's, she's learned nothing. And she's urging parents to send their kids back to school next month. And by next month, I mean the month that begins this week. Florida, it's the top of every COVID update section for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the number of new cases went up almost 10,000 yesterday. And that marked the 36th consecutive day Florida recorded more than 5,000 new cases. Please think about that. At least 5,000 new cases a day for 36 straight days. Florida also just recorded their highest daily death count since the pandemic began for the second straight day. And here in New York, 
now we're like the North Star, baby. I mean, Cuomo announced that uh, the cases and deaths are the lowest point since March. And I just had a parent-teacher conference yesterday for, uh, with the principal about how we're going to send kids back to public schools. There are three states that have met all five federal guidelines. It can be done, but it requires leadership. And you can't be a leader when you're acting like a boss. And you really can't be a leader when you are a blindly obedient serf to a guy who's acting like a boss. Also, let's hear it for the uh, Republican Party. Thank you guys for putting uh, $650 million for F-35 fighter jets into the recovery bill. I guess you found a new way to zap the virus. All right. Uh, listen, let's get to it. Um, I want to bring in Leslie Streeter. Uh, we sat down for an interview uh, via Zencaster. And um, the most moving thing about this is you will hear a little child in the background. And um, that is her six-year-old that she, uh, that is her and her husband's child. And her husband is not here. So normally um, it would be awkward hearing a little kid in the background of an interview here. Um, it's especially poignant. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Leslie Streeter. Leslie, welcome to uh, the Sanity Cast. I'm so honored and thrilled to have you. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. Uh, definitely. I- I'm, I'm such a fan of the book. And honestly, uh, you also wrote a piece for Medium that really helped me get through this year so far. Aside from the inspiration in your book, your, your piece for Medium about why laughter, even the weary, ironic kind can help right now. And, uh, you know, I remember that you wrote this piece, it was in the spring, and you said, uh, more or less that we can all agree, there's nothing funny about a global pandemic. But as humans, all of our natural defense mechanisms come into play in a time of stress, and we're in one. So it makes sense that along with panic and weeping, our psyches cling to any expression of relief, including laughter, even the weary, desperate, ironic kind. And I thought, coming from you, that really means something because you have sort of, you know, had to rebuild your whole life around this whole thing of finding the joy and, and the beauty in so much kind of pain and uncertainty. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's weird. Um, yesterday was the, well, the uh, yesterday of the day that we were recording this, uh, July 29th was the fifth anniversary of my husband's death. And every year I would usually come from Florida up to Maryland, which is where we met in high school and where my family is. And I called it the bad day. And I would usually, the first couple years was mostly like bourbon and crying and, and just not being around. Um, I'm so sorry. Hold on a second. Dude, you're all right. No, it's okay. I have the same thing going on. Sorry. Six year old. No worries. No worries. Hold on a second, sweetie. It's okay. Please it's take right. your time. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. You just spilled some juice. Yeah, buddy. Buddy, buddy, you didn't do anything wrong. You just spilled juice. Here, here. Come to. Oh, good. Go over there and eat the rest of it. Okay. You're all right. You're okay. You're all right. <laughs> Baby, you're okay. <sighs> We had a six-year-old spill juice on the step situation. Ah, wow. You handled you, it beautifully. We'll cut yeah. all that out. I, I do promise. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's and listen, Leslie, anyway, if, if, this that... is a crazy, if this is a, if this is a crazy time, we can always do it later in the day or whatever you need. Okay. No, this is going to be the best. <laughs> it's, it's not, it doesn't get any crazy. You got it. I think the I only time we won't take where it's quiet is like, 
Oh no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, should I start over what I was saying about uh, the anniversary of sure, Scott's yeah. death? That'd be wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So thank no problem. Uh, so July 29th was the anniversary, fifth anniversary of my husband's death. And usually I call it the bad day. And usually we always had our vacation from Florida up here to Maryland, where I am now for like a week, where we would like drink and cry and talk to people. We went to see an Orioles game once and stuff that he would like to do. And so this year, which is like the weirdest year ever, the book came out, global pandemic, things are crazy. Um, I'm, I've left Florida. Um, I'm starting a new job. All these things are happening. And so for this anniversary to happen in the middle of it, we talk about sort of like things happen Life keeps happening and things keep happening. And this year we celebrated it by um, ordering some crabs and watching TV and laughing. Um, and it's, it's always, it will always be sad. The loss of my husband will always be sad, but more and more I've always incorpor- tried to incorporate the now and the moment and even being with family and chilling into it. And this year we're, we're starting our life over here in the place where we began, where we met it just seemed really like a cool way to say it's okay to be happy today and not to cry and to miss him and honor him and to laugh. And people told stories on Facebook about him, about how in high school he pulled a racing form out of his bag. Um, Cause he used to go to Pimlico all the time and he used to like run a gambling wow. ring in the hot in the high school hall. Yeah. He ran a, a game in, in our New York times um, wedding announcement in 2010, he discussed his quote unquote hallway business which was he ran bets in a card game in the hallway. Um, and I love hearing those stories. So even in the midst of something bad happening, like him not being here, I wanted to focus on the funny stuff and the joyful stuff and the, the happy stuff and the why did he do that stuff. And I think that kind of resonates with what's happening yeah. now and that medium piece, I think, which was I wrote originally for um, Katie Couric's um, – wake up call newsletter. And I was so honored to have it there and to have that on medium because it really speaks to what can you do when you can't stop the bad crap from happening. And I think the only thing you can do is focus on anything that makes you happy and not not stabby. Um, and, and laugh. I mean, it seems like that really is the balance, you know, in the book, you, you, I'm going to quote the book so much here because you write, I reject the idea that there is one right way to grieve or one way of doing it. Also, there are no real answers except to hope there is something better as you heal. You write, my uncle told me when my dad died, you'll never get over it, but you'll get through it. And and this is so true. And one thing that you've you've always said is that you, you have always processed the pain in life through humor. And knowing that as you do how essential laughter is for healing, and many people don't, many people think laughter is frivolous and an insult to the pain. Uh, I mean, was there a time in your life when you really, I guess, felt you had a sense of balancing the two, the humor and the grief, the joy and the sorrow? I think, in, and, and you or is it know something about you just learn more? I think I just kind of learned it. And you, you know about, you know, unfortunately, personally about loss and stuff that sometimes the way that you deal is the way that you deal. It just comes out that way. And I think that when I was processing both like the loss of my father and the loss of Scott and other losses in my life, that's just sort of like what the, the bubble wrap that my brain formed to keep me from going nuts was humor. I think that just sort of the way that it, that it came out. And at first there was no balance. It was all like, you know, headlong into a train when loss happens and you're 
the rest of you is trying to catch up to the thing that that's happened to you. But I think that once I started writing and I thought, okay, whatever this thing is I'm writing, I'm just going to like let it flow out of me. And it started to be that way. I think the balance also began to resonate in my life because I was writing what was happening basically in real time or a couple, you know, when I started the first chapter about buying the cemetery plot that I wrote that maybe a month or two after that happened. So it was still fresh in my mind. And as I began to process these things, um, yeah. So, and that's why it's, it's very raw. And as I began to process these things, I found that the longer, the more space there was between an event and me writing it, I had hoped that I'd written something down about it, or that I made sure that I was being true to the, the emotions, but also I began to process things in a different way. And again, that balance came, it's okay, you know, to be funny. Cause you know, you talked about that people think it's an insult sometimes to the pain and you have to be super, super solemn. Right. But to me, it would have been an insult to Scott not to have a funny moment and not, there's this, yes. um, and I will always quote pop culture things. There's a, beautiful uh david simon's beautiful show trimme um where uh, mm-hmm. um there's a character who um who kills himself and he said that he wanted a a second line funeral and melissa leo plays his wife and she says i don't want you to have it because you didn't deserve it because you left me this way and why do you get to have something that's happy where and joyous where you left us in this pain and i think sort of the reverse of that that i felt like I didn't want to force anything and have people, we're going to have a chuckly funeral. Or it's going to be happier and going to be happier. I'll stab you. It was more like, this feels like something he would want, you know, cause you don't, you don't want to force everyone and go, we're going to be happier. I'll cut you. Um, it's not like that. It's like the things that happen, like um, his cousin doing the, the eulogy with the Jefferson song or just like weird stuff going on. And just kind of like, this is funny because it's him or we buried him in his Brooks Robinson Jersey and his Raven slippers and then a nice pair of pants. Um, and it looked goofy. It wasn't an open casket funeral anyway, but we knew and we saw it and it was funny. Um, so I think that just kind of happened and it would have been a betrayal to him not to have those moments that were weird or iconoclastic or just funny. Hmm. I mean, the story itself and the story that comes before your book story begins is such a beautiful one. You you remark in the book how Cupid was able to work around his error in timing <laughs> and bring you and Scott together. I, I I mean, the story of how you you met and then met almost two decades later. Uh, how how did you two meet, and and when was the moment that you knew that you were going to marry this particular man? <laughs> What's so funny? He he told me I think this is in the book that he knew when he met me, but he knew that I was like skittish deer, and that if he'd said, "So listen, I think we're gonna get married," I would have been like, "Yeah, I'm out," um, for no other reason than it's scary. Um, so it was like I don't want this. But we met in high school, um, and I remember him just being this really funny guy who thought he was a Beastie Boy, and who like wore a medallion with a um, Audi a hood ornament around his neck like an idiot. Um, and he was really cute, and I knew of him. I knew he was life of the party and really loud, and I was kind of a happy dork. And so we were not in the same group of people. But when we re-met in Florida um, in two thousand, end of 2008, December, it was my mother's birthday, December 1st, 2008. And I saw him, and I remember thinking, 
well, he looks different from high school because everyone does. He didn't have any hair. He was wearing glasses, but he was super cute. And we just talked like, this is just a drink. And then I remember him walking away and going, I hope he calls me. And then I'm like, in my inner monologue, he's an idiot written by an idiot. going, what are you doing? Shut up. You don't want that. So when he called me after Christmas and said, you want to hang out some more? I was like, sure. Um, because it was healthy. And, you know, when you're used to unhealthy things, you don't know how healthy, you forget how healthy it's supposed to look. So like, so you mean that you have interest in me yes. and you actually want to talk to me and you're actually going to call me when you say you're not going to play games and ghost me every week and then call back when you think that I've got someone else because that's what I was used to. And I was like, oh, no, this is a, an, an adult right. human, <laughs> you know, so it took me a little <laughs> bit. It was shocking, a human. Um, and that's honestly part of, you know, now, you know, 10 years after that happened and five years after his death, as I you know, look forward to the prospect of hopefully meeting someone else. He, he set a really high standard um, for that. And as I near yes. 50, I am, I imagine that it's going to be even harder to find that. So um, <laughs> good luck to me. He, he ruined it for everybody. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, but respectfully, uh, there's not that many men at your level. I mean, the, your, your, oh. uh, your talent and your brilliance and your beauty are all undeniable. And oh. your story, I mean, if this had just been the story of the, the black Baptist girl marrying the white Jewish boy, it would have been a lovely book. And, and it seems Thank like, you. I know when you were a columnist, you once said you thought your first book would be fictional. I'm wondering, how did you end up yes. writing the exact opposite, an intensely real and it's, personal book based on moving through this grief? I think I just, I knew, like I was supposed to, like the day of his death, my friend Scott Iman, who is amazing, who's a Hollywood historian, um, written books on Louis B. Mayer and John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. He's just a great dude, um, was in my kitchen. And I, I'd always, I would write fiction and say, what do you think? I would write four chapters and get bored and leave. And he always said, you'll write the book you need to write, that you have to write. And that day I'd been a widow, maybe eight hours. And I looked up and said, I think mm. this is my book. It just came out. And he said, kid, I think it is too. And um, yeah, so I felt like physically these words were pounding on my chest and I had to like get them out of my head or I was going to die. And I also felt like, um, the story needed to be told. And I, I knew that it wasn't going to be once again, like a 12 step, here's what you do. And then you'll be happy. Cause that's not a thing. Right. Exactly. Um, and I knew it wasn't going to be, um, and you, you given your background, you're familiar with like those books, like in the eighties and the nineties, there were a lot of like women's, um, Bible study books that had like pink covers yeah. and butterflies and coffee cups and, that kind of thing. <laughs> and that's not yes. me. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what I do. Um, I would, I would literally be in Bible studies going, Nope, Nope, <laughs> Nope, 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 Nope. Um, so I knew like it wasn't going to be like an inspirational book to sell at a, at a, you know, at a Christian bookstore. I hope they sell it at a Christian bookstore because there's elements of spirituality and stuff I think that are very important, but it's, there's a lot of curse words in it too. My pastor, um, from that time mm. from the nineties called me and said, I loved your book. I almost called you about the language. And I was like, I know you did. He's like, I loved it anyway. I'm like, thank you. It, was just, it, it is what it is. So I was approved by Pastor Dave. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Um, but all I have to say is that I felt like I needed to write this book and I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but I knew it was not going to be this like, 
you know, purely I've got it all figured out kind of thing. Cause a, I was literally, like I said, writing it in real time. I had nothing figured out. I didn't know how I was going to get through the next like month at the moment that I started writing it and things began to change. And once we got closer and closer to the adoption, I, it just kind of happened. That timeline happened. Um, I think that happened in 16 and I found my agent in 17. So I sort of thought, okay, Mitz Memoir, what perfect bookends, you know, the, the death and then almost a year later yeah. to the day, um, seven days before the, the death anniversary, we finalized my, my son Brooks's adoption. So I felt like, okay, oh. it's going to be somewhere in this timeline and it's going to, so I didn't have to worry about like, you know, what happens if you start dating? That wasn't a part of the story or what happens there, there are reconciliations and things that happened and that happened after, but that year I thought so much happened in that year, even it wasn't in the book um, that I think it was right. enough. It was enough. It, some people would say it's too much, <laughs> but that's okay. Oh God, no. I mean, I, I think what you experienced was too much. You know, one of my favorite quotes, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation. It's the five-year anniversary of, of, of losing him right now. Um, yeah. It was know, ye- yesterday. Has yeah. been staying with- yesterday. Uh, it's the 10-year anniversary of losing my dad this weekend. And, oh, and a quote of yours that has stayed with me. Oh, it's okay. You know, it's, it's 10 years. The world has, the world has gone on and um, wherever he is, he doesn't want me miserable. Um, you but go. you wrote, grief doesn't just break your heart. It breaks your brain. It dents your body hobbles your ability to take full breaths and you know your 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 man was jewish which meant you had to plan for a funeral that would abide both his jewish and your own baptist traditions and in you talk about how particularly challenging this was in the memoir and for as as funny and inspiring as it is you were going through this time where your whole body was broken Oh, it was. It just, I didn't know. I, I lost the ability to, to sleep. Um, and then sometimes it's, it's a whole full depression, not when you get out of bed, but knowing I had to, and then feeling guilty about not being able to get out of bed, although everybody in the house understood. Um, and I, I, so many people during COVID have talked about that, about the, um, the insomnia and the literally the, the sleeplessness and the sort of aimlessness and not being able to focus. And because what we're going through is grief, it truly is. It's so, it's stress and it's everything, but there's such an element of grief and what's happening right now um, with everything with, you know, the political uh, climate and the uh, Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on. We're just like, what the heck is happening? And that certainly happened yeah. in the first couple of days um, through like figuring out what I was going to do, planning the funeral. It was like surreal stuff, like, going to a, a cemetery and like I've picked out my grave. I'm, I'm going to be buried next to him. We went and said goodbye. Brooks and I went and said goodbye before we moved a couple weeks ago and went to the cemetery and he was pointing out, um, I hope you can't hear me. He was pointing out like all of the people that were buried next to each other. He goes, or are they buried next to each other? And I'm hoping he's not noticing that there's a space <laughs> um, of good right. interest to, Space, you wouldn't know it, but that's where I'm supposed to be. I paid for it. I, I have the. Uh, I paid for part of it with my with my advance money. In that, I wrote a book about my husband's death, and I paid for my grave site with the advance money. So, let let that be a thing. Um, <laughs> you know why not? That's, Nothing that's the first chapter of a follow up book. Wow, <laughs> right? 
you know, so all this stuff is happening. Thank you. All it's happening. And you're just thinking mentally and emotionally and physically, I can't do any of this, but I have to do all of it. And that's when you have to rely on other people, which, and I'm so fortunate that I had people who, like I said, in the book just showed up at my house and went, okay, you go away. (laughs) We're doing this. We're doing this. And people were just, it was like a game show. Like I said, people just showed up at my house. Um, the, The friend Melanie, whose house I'm in right now, we're staying at her guest house right now. Um, showed up the first night. I literally wandered into my living room and she was in the recliner. I was like, okay, I guess this is how this is going to be. People are just going to like show up and help me and stop me from um, freaking out and seeing where I couldn't do anything, seeing where I was broken, seeing where I was unable to to function, that I would be in conversations and go, it was nice to talk to you. I got to go. And I'd run down the hall because I just couldn't. And like my brain and body were just catching up to that. And there's like the whole like, that I mostly was very polite and I listened, but sometimes I was just like, like, you know, like when you're falling asleep and you just have to go, you go, I'm so sorry. I got to get off the phone now. I'm falling asleep. That's what it was like. Just like my body's like, you've got 10 seconds or you're going to just fall asleep right here. You're going to freak out on the floor. So you should probably go now. Yeah. Oh, I understand. I mean, I do want to ask you about how putting this experience, this chapter, this pain into words helped your healing and helped your your personal and creative direction because everybody always thinks that writers are the ones who can always find the words and then sometimes there's no words for what a human is feeling and you give voice to that as well in your book and one of the most moving parts you 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 talk about being at the hospital with Scott and realizing there was as you say no poetry in that moment how do you keep on going when you find yourself unable to even express what you're experiencing? Is it just a matter of listening and, and, and collapsing when your body needs it? I mean, you write about memory lapses and about this uh, cocoon of bubble wrap you put yourself in. Mm-hmm. And now, pardon me, once again, my pop culture thing, I've got, how do you keep the music playing in my head? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> um, sorry. I, I, will, I will break into 80s songs for no reason. Don't test me, John Fugel, saying it will happen. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think that I just, first of all, it's things like that. It's like, I was allowed, I allowed myself to be weird. I allowed myself to go, today I feel like whatever. I would write in the book and I would go, should I write, should I tell a story or should I break into a soliloquy about must love dogs? <laughs> Why not? I just, and I just kind of <laughs> did it. And I, I think I gave myself permission to feel what I was feeling and that went into the book and I gave myself permission to during the non-book part of my healing to um, just feel. And when I decided that I was going to write it, I was like, I'm going to be real about this. I'm not going to be like, talk about poop or whatever, but you know, could people like, Oh, let's just be reading real means you have to be scatological and all that stuff. And I, that's not me. Right. But I was like, I, my, my realness is like, I felt this thing and it doesn't make me look very good. Um, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway, or I'm going to admit that I wasn't maybe gracious to that person or whatever. And I just kind of let it, let it roll and giving myself permission to do that gave myself permission, I think, to heal because as a journalist, right, you want to, you want the truth. You want to feel everything. You want to get the feelings and the emotions. And when I interview people about their lives, I'm like, you don't have to literally tell me everything that ever happened to you, but it helps if you're truthful, 
And mm. I could, I had to do that to myself because I expect people I interview to do that. So I was like, I got to do that. I mean, once again, not in ways that were going to like hurt people or say, you know, when I mentioned like bad boyfriends, I didn't say in you, blah, 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 of blah, blah, blah street. Right. Um, and cause they're so great right. and they, they probably denied anyway. So there's really no point of that, but I, I helped myself. I think by just saying, I'm going to just feel these things and I'm not going to judge myself for them. I'm not going to try to put my emotions in a box as I'm feeling them. I'm not going to tell myself I'm bad or wrong for doing this or healing this way or mourning or grieving this way. And that sort of informed the book and then writing the book informed how I felt. So it was sort of like, twisted into each other. And I like that. Thank you. You know, I, I, uh, as much as I, I, I mean, I love you as an artist and I love everything you're talking about. And I think that there's so many people who will find inspiration in, in your story and in your, your practice. And it's also just so refreshing to read your thoughts about how to best <laughs> comfort someone who is grieving. I mean, too often people really feel this need. It's well-intentioned to compare your loss to theirs and to make sense of death by somehow offering you their version of how to reason through it. What would you say, it, it, as a writer and as a survivor, what would you say is the most comforting and compassionate way we can support those who have lost a loved one? Um, and I say some of this in the, in the book, and I've been asked this before, and I think there, there's no... Everything I say, there's like going to be one person listening going, that didn't help me at all. But I know for me, sorry for your loss was very helpful because it didn't, unless I knew someone really well, or they knew me really well, they didn't have to like freestyle it or like go, let me yeah. tell you something that worked oh, for yeah. me. Um, and I talk, and I've talked about oh. and other things I've written about, like, don't go to religion if you don't know what that person's um, belief system is, because you might be hurting more than you're helping. Don't. Assume ding, ding. that you, right? Don't assume that you, the way that you helped, that you were helped, or the way that you grieved is how other people are going to, or that they have to, and that they're doing something wrong if they don't accept what you're saying. My cousin called me, um, I think the day after, and, and said, This sucks. And that is what I needed. I needed someone to tell me to acknowledge that, not to say anything that was like, helpful or anything that was like in a better place on another plane with the angels, whatever. I hate that mm -hmm. crap. Um, oh, yeah. Because even if it's true, oh. that was not helpful because I wanted him to be here with me. A friend of mine emailed me yesterday and said, five years ago today, you and I and Scott were supposed to be having drinks. I go, yes, we were, <laughs> we were, and we didn't. And that sucks. And nothing about this made sense. There was no like, you know, when this, the one who said the thing about, you know, he's completed the cycle around the sun. And I was like, who gets to determine that? I mean, obviously he has, yeah. but why is that comforting? Why is time stopped and the, the sands of the hourglass ran out, McDonald Carey, and there's nothing, the days of your lives are over. It's finny, you're done. How is that helpful? How is that like, who does that help? Well, your husband died. You're basically saying, yes, I know. I'm dealing with this now. It's all over Facebook. Screw you. So don't do that. Don't try to be philosophical. Mm. Don't try to be pithy. Don't try to be like, say something that I'm going to blow your mind with my condolences. Don't do that crap. Just say, do you need me? Don't even say, what can I do? Because then the person who is grieving has to come up with something for you to do so you feel better about yourself. Just say, I'm so sorry. 
and then maybe ask somebody else, does she need some chicken? You know, is, does someone need some, <laughs> someone to pick, you know, does she need some chicken? Does someone need someone to pick her mother up from the airport? Uh, I mean, I found out later there was this intricate level of my sister was coordinating everything going, people will call and say, what can I do? She go, my aunt's coming in at whatever time, go get her. Okay, great. And they'd be standing there like, hi, I'm, I'm Leslie's friend. Can I put you in my car? I'm a complete stranger. No, I'm fine. That's normal. Um, you know, so I had people picking people up and uh, my friend Shelly picked Brooks up from the, from the daycare and it just all was, there was so much happening and people just pitched in, found someone else to ask and they helped. And maybe you're not there. Maybe you can call and say, is there a contribution or people putting money together for gift certificates? Like people sent me like Whole Foods gift cards or that kind of thing and stuff that was practical that I would need. And all of those people yeah. were people that I, I would not have minded if they had extrapolated a little bit, but the best thing to do was just to say, I'm a backup off of you. I'm going to help where I can. And I'm not going to try to solve your grief right now um, because it makes me feel comfortable. Yeah. Like I did something. What is next for you, Leslie? Um, well, I, like I said, I'm, I'm starting a, a new job uh, next week um, for a, a consultancy firm that's really cool in D.C. Um, this morning I asked, uh, so on these Zoom calls, what should I wear? And they're like, you know, some of you can wear a T-shirt. You don't have to wear like a blazer. I said, well, most of my blazers go over Rolling Stones T-shirts. So it will probably be okay Um <laughs> For me, you know, that's I, I, you know, I dress like a 90s rock reporter, which is what I've always been. So I'm not going to do that, you know, right now, but that's what I always been. I'm doing some freelancing. I got some cool stuff coming with that. Um, we've optioned the book um, to a studio. We haven't um, right now. They're working on finding writers and then hopefully selling it to something to be something soon. And I'll tell you all about it. You'll be the first one to know because it'll be all over Twitter with it when it happens. But um, oh, great. So good stuff is happening with that. I mean, it did not sell hotcakes gangbusters um, because it's hard to do that during a pandemic. And that was, that's a grief. I had to grieve this book. I thought was going to be like, woohoo. And it's like, ah. but people are finding it. The most important thing is that every well, and bookstores week, are finally know, bookstores are reopening. Yes. So it's going to find, it's finding an audience of people who need it, which is the most important thing. And it's, it might not be the thing that makes me rich, but it's going to be the thing that helps people. So that's great. I'm working on fiction. Um, so we'll see how I'm going to have time to write something, but it's rom-com COVID related. Um, widowhood also, because <laughs> it's got pop culture, widowhood and romantic comedy, which is like every part of my DNA. So um, yeah, that's, that, so that's going to be fun. Um, so I'm just basically going to keep it moving, you know, keep, keep hustling. Um, yeah. Well, I want, I want everyone to buy the book again. It's black widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. I want everyone to read it. And I'm so honored to talk about the book with you. Uh, please also follow Leslie on Twitter. She's one of the reasons I don't quit the damn platform at Leslie street or L E S L I E S T R E E T E R. And, you know, Honestly, I want to thank you for a book that's, I think, so specific to your amazing life and yet so universal because it's all about how finding the funny 
in a crisis of loss isn't just a defense mechanism. It is literally a healthy choice. And I hope someday we can meet up and compare concert t-shirts. Yes, let's do that. Terrific. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. And thank you again for this beautiful book. I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you. You know what I hate? When your social media pops up with a summer vacation pic from like five years ago, and it's great memories, but you're like, ugh, when do the wrinkles and the bags around the eyes show up? Delete, delete. Well, not this summer. Let's say no more pop-up pics with deep wrinkles, fine lines, and bags under the eyes. And I'm not talking about surgery. I'm talking about Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags all in the comfort of your home in minutes. Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so nobody will know your secret. I tried it, and I look like me, just younger, healthier, and better rested. The results will blow you away. Get Plexiderm and love how you look and feel this summer in the mirror, and in photos. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. Or try a $14.95 trial pack today by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mention VOICES. Again, visit TryPlexiderm.com and use code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle plus an additional $10 off. Or try a $14.95 trial pack when you use code VOICES. We all know that the Clean Phone Pro with its powerful UV lights kills bacteria and viruses that live on your cell phone, car and house keys, credit cards, earbuds, face masks, and more. But what happens when you're driving to the store, you reach for your face mask, and realize you wore it yesterday? <sighs> now you can sanitize that mask in under five minutes in your car because the Clean Phone Pro now ships with a powerful car plug adapter included in the package. So whether you're keeping safe at home or have to go out, you can have the benefits of the Clean Phone Pro with you and sanitize those constantly touched items anywhere, at home, in the car, or at the office. Get the Clean Phone Pro now with a car plug adapter. Add the code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, at checkout, and you'll get free two-day shipping. Only you can defend yourself and your family from bacteria and virus. Get the new Clean Phone Pro package. Get KN95 masks and get free two-day shipping by adding the code SEXYLIBERAL. Go to thenewdealshop.com. Thank you again, Leslie Gray Streeter. The book, once again, is... uh is called Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. And thank you guys for listening. I want to I want to get out of here with a, a really quick uh, timeline game um, because the 29th, you know, every every day of every month is remarkable. And this is my new theory that all you need to do is trace back what Trump was doing uh, one month ago today from the beginning of 2020. And it'll tell the whole story for historians. You don't believe me? Pick any day of the month. Uh, let's go with the 29th, okay? Uh, that's the day that Donald Trump did his suburban lifestyle dream tweet. Um, let's go way back in time. On uh, the 29th of January, way, way back, remember January? Um, that was the day that both Navarro and Senator Cotton begged him to take COVID-19 seriously. On the 29th of February, that was the day America had our first death. That was the day he said a vaccine would be available very quickly. Uh, the 29th of February was the day uh, he said um, the vaccine would be here very rapidly and praised his administration uh, actions as the most aggressive taken by any country. One person dead on the 29th of February. One month later, 29th of March, 2,585 
thousand people were dead. That was the day the president bragged his ratings were higher than The Bachelor. That was the day he lied that uh, he inherited broken tests from the Obama administration for a virus that didn't exist until three years after Obama left office. That was the day the president suggested with no evidence that nurses were stealing respirator masks. And we had 2,500 deaths. One month later, the 29th of April, we'd gone from 2,000 to 60 thousand dead Americans. That was the day Jared went on Fox and Friends and said, we're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think we've achieved all the different milestones that are needed. So the government, federal government, rose to the challenge, and this is a great success story, and I think that that's really what needs to be told. There's blood on his little criminal family hands. Jared Kushner should never be allowed to show his face when this is over. Let's go a month later, though, to the 29th of May. We'd gone from 60,000 dead to 102,000 dead. And on May 29th, he announced that America was terminating its relationship with the World Health Organization. He also retweeted a video that said the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. You just need one day of the month. And then 29th of June, well, that was the day we had gone from 102,000 dead to 129,000 dead. That was the day he blocked Dr. Fauci from any media appearances. Cut to the 29th of July, and he pivots back to racism, and he announces he's doing Putin's bidding, and we hit 150,000 dead, and he doesn't mention it. (sighs) Thank you guys for giving me so much hope. Thank all the decent people, all the people with empathy, all the people who can spell you are correctly. Yeah, my standards have been lowered. Thank you for giving me hope. It is an honor to do this podcast. Uh, Remember, you are not crazy. The gaslighters want you to think you are crazy. So check out, do what you need to get sane. Go get dirty or get creative or or get poetic, but then get back in the game. We need you. Please write to me at John Fugelsang or on the Facebook. Please uh, subscribe and give us a review if you like. Uh, And please, please, please listen to all the podcasts on Stephanie Miller's wonderful podcast network. Thank you guys so much. And um, use the free 30-day option to get SiriusXM. I will be having uh, the RZA from Wu-Tang Clan on this Friday night. Thank you so much. This is SanityCast. Thanks to Crystal Boy, Jennifer Hagerty, and everybody at Stephanie's Network. Peace. Peace.